Good morning, brothers and sisters. Good to be with you this morning. I'd like to begin by asking a question. And my question is, what do Christians have to offer the world? Think about that question for a few minutes. What do Christians have to offer the world? You might say, not a whole lot. Christians are not uh, a major power in control of the world. Or maybe you think, lots of things. In fact, uh, ancient apologists often uh, argued for the benefits of Christians in society by the many good things they offer. Things like neighborly love, uh, being honest workers or business owners, uh, placing an emphasis on education, good system of moral values, tax contributors, All of these things are great for society and still true today, but none of these things are the most important or most valuable thing that Christians can offer the world. Far and away, the most important thing we can offer the world as Christians is the information necessary to receive eternal life. It's the knowledge that there is hope beyond the grave, for all who trust in Jesus. This is the very topic, uh, eternal life is, that we turn our attention to this morning. Because in today's passage, a man comes to Jesus asking the very question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There could be nothing more crucial, nothing more important for us to think about this morning than the answer to that question. So turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, we're going to be looking at verses 17 through verses 31. And if you're using the Bibles provided underneath the seats, you can find our sermon text on page 846. If you've been following along with us through the Gospel of Mark, you know that Jesus has been teaching his disciples crucial things about the kingdom of God and what it means to be a follower of Jesus as they journey towards Jerusalem. He's told them plainly already twice now that he's going to be handed over to wicked men, be killed, and then rise again three days later. And much of that just seems to have gone completely over the disciples' heads. But he still labored to teach them that to follow Jesus means to surrender your plans for life in exchange with God's. He's told them that they are to be servant of others, for example. He has told them that they will need to take up their own crosses, effectively saying, be prepared to be killed even for the sake of Christ. And he's continually associated the kingdom of God with his very own person and ministry. Well, in today's passage, Jesus continues the pattern of providing life-altering teaching about following Jesus. That could be nothing short of a radically new way of living a new set of priorities. So what does Jesus have to say about those seeking eternal life? Let's read our text now to find out. Mark 10, verses 17 through 31. It says this, And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. 
Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is God's Word. I'm going to divide this passage into three main sections. In verses 17 through 22, we have the story of the rich young man who must choose between his riches and Jesus. In verses 23 through 27, we have Jesus explaining to his disciples that salvation is impossible without God. And in verses 28 through 31, Jesus teaches his disciples about the reward of those who follow Christ. There's a lot going on in this passage, but the main idea is this. For us, following Jesus might cost you everything, but the reward will be greater still. Following Jesus might cost you everything, but the reward will be greater still. If you're a follower of Christ already here this morning, my prayer is that you would be reminded not to put your trust or hope in anything other than the finished work of Christ, and that you would meditate on and hope in the eternal reward promised to us by Jesus. If you're not a follower of Christ here this morning, I'm so thankful that you are here and would spend a few hours with us on a Sunday morning. Please know you're always welcome My prayer is that you would just gain a clearer understanding of what it means to follow Jesus through this teaching, that you would understand what is required to gain eternal life. So point one, verses 17 through 22, an impressive recruit, an impressive recruit. Uh, This is a unique interaction recorded in the gospel, namely because typically what happens while Jesus is going about is people come to him to be healed or to listen to his authoritative teaching. But even in the instances of his teaching, we haven't read of anyone asking Jesus such a straightforward question about eternal life. And not only that, but uh, I say an impressive recruit because it seems like he would be the kind of guy that you would want on your team. He seems like the kind of guy we would expect Jesus to look for 
maybe. All we actually learn from Mark is that he's rich, but we know from Matthew and Luke in their accounts, they refer to him as being a young man and being a ruler of some kind, uh, which is why this story is often referred to as the story of the rich young ruler. But just in verse 17, the man shows signs that he is uh, what we could call disciple material. He doesn't just happen to be sitting on the side of the road. He runs to Jesus. I don't know when the last time was that you ran to get someone's attention, uh, but you can tell that this is an urgent matter. He runs to Jesus because he thinks Jesus will be able to provide an answer to a question that no one else's answers have satisfied yet. And this isn't the point of the story, but it's just worth pointing out that this man's assumption that Jesus has an answer is correct. Jesus does have knowledge about the kingdom of God. And he does speak authoritatively in a way that no one else does. So, friend, if you're here and you've not been satisfied with the answers that other worldviews have provided regarding things that happen after death, study the words of Jesus. Uh, I can say, at least in my own life, I've simply found a lot of other worldview answers about things like guilt and shame and what to do with sin simply lacking. But the Bible, on the other hand, speaks clearly about these things. For those of us already following Christ, it's a good reminder to be shaped first and foremost by what is in God's Word. Because the answers and solutions of mere men are not enough. Uh, I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis, who, talking about the Christian worldview, said that it was like uh, the rising sun by which he saw the rest of the world. I think that's a wonderful way to think about the Scriptures we approach the scriptures and look through and observe the rest of the world by what the scriptures teach us. Well, this man is clearly desperate for teaching that will save his soul. And he not only runs, but then he kneels before Jesus. It's a sign of reverence and respect. He even addresses Jesus as good teacher, which um, sounds kind of like an unspectacular title to us. Uh, You know, oftentimes in our day and age, we emphasize the fact that Jesus is not just a good teacher uh, because most people who do say he's just a good teacher are trying to downplay his authority, say that he's not the Son of God or something like that. But in this man's context, to call someone good was simply unheard of. And that's because in Judaism, God is the only one who's characteristically called good. As it turns out, we actually don't even have a parallel of, of this time in Jewish literature of someone else being called a good teacher. So at the very least, this man is speaking to Jesus in a very unique and reverential way during his time. And that helps us, I think, understand Jesus' response a little bit better. Uh, you might have read it and just thought, wait a second, is Jesus saying he's not good? Is Jesus saying he's a sinner? Uh, No, that's not what he's getting at. He's speaking in a way that was common for Jews to speak about God. So he's not saying that he isn't good, and he's not saying that he isn't God. By saying only God is good, Jesus is setting up the man to show that he falls short of God's perfect standard, even knowing his track record with the law. And uh, some have looked at this man as Jesus lists a few of the commandments, and uh, he claims to be following them. People have looked at this and said, well, he must be a a legalist, or he must be some kind of hypocrite when he says he's kept all the commandments. 
But I think everything in the passage implies that he's being genuine. Uh, We know that sin comes from within, from the heart. Uh, So, of course, this man is a sinner, and I think he knows that. That's why he's seeking answers from Jesus about eternal life. But it appears he's doing his best to follow the commands of God and is sensitive to deep spiritual matters. He's far more disciplined than the average person when it comes to the law. He's concerned about the most important question in life, how to inherit eternal life. Uh, This is a a question that we as Christians wish everyone would ask us, right? Uh, And this is a question that everyone who claims to be a Christian should be prepared to answer. I'm going to be spending most of my time this morning talking about what Jesus says, but perhaps later today over lunch, uh, be thinking about or talk to others about how you would answer someone if they came up to you and asked this question. Uh, You never know. The Lord may bring someone searching into your life just like this man. As Christians, we should be prepared to answer them, and we we must take great care that we don't mislead them. Uh, Nothing could be more important than telling them the truth. And why do I say that? Well, because eternity is on the line. Our existence does not vanish when we die. Uh, This life is like an eternal placement test. Uh, It's more than just that, but how we live in this life will determine where we go beyond the grave. It's an essential truth of the Bible that we were created by God to be in a relationship with Him forever. And when Adam and Eve sinned, we were separated from God. Humanity was infected by sin, and death is part of the result of the fall. It's a reality for all humanity that we will all die and then sin will be punished. But there is hope of life beyond the grave. And that is what this man is referring to as eternal life. It's what we typically refer to as heaven, eternal blessedness with God. That's what we were created for. A few weeks ago, we looked at just the end of chapter 9 where Jesus warns his disciples about sin and the dangers of hell, uh, where sin is punished throughout eternity. And I made a point in that sermon to say that hell is real. And now I think it's an appropriate point to say that heaven is real. Heaven is a real physical place. It's described in lots of different ways throughout the New Testament. Uh, It's described as a place of staggering beauty, a city of jewels and gold, a, a great banquet feast. Uh, the eternal weight of glory, Paul calls it. It's a place with no tears and no pain, no sorrow. Most importantly, it's the place where God dwells with his people. Heaven is a real physical place. And notice what Jesus doesn't say here to the man. When the man asks how to inherit eternal life, he doesn't just say to him, Good sir. It's actually not the destination that matters. It's just the journey. Jesus doesn't tell him that all paths lead to the same place. Instead, he asks about his obedience to some of the commandments. And this isn't just a thought experiment either. Jesus is asking if his life lines up with the heart of God. And this man appears to be striving as best as he can. Jesus assumes that there is a right way to live and a wrong way to live. And I think that's worth pointing out in our culture where so many people just deny simply outright that that's the case. 
And Jesus uh, breaks the rules, typically, of what most people go by when they're trying to gain followers. Uh, companies, for example, they market all the benefits in large, bold letters, right? And then what do they do? All the terms and conditions are so small you can barely even see them at the bottom of the page. Or at the commercial, at the end of the commercial, there are times five speed. Jesus basically reads the fine print to him. He gives him the hard news up front, and he does so out of love. Look again at verse 21 and 22. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So Jesus offered the man a choice. Follow me and gain treasure in heaven, or keep your riches. And by doing this, Jesus identified one commandment in particular that the man had not been keeping, whether he realized it or not. And that commandment was the very first one. You shall have no other gods before me. I think there's three uh, important things to learn by analyzing what Jesus is not saying when he tells the man to sell all he has and give to the poor. So first, Jesus' instruction to the man does not mean that every Christian everywhere must sell everything they have and give to the poor. Uh, Being a Christian does not simply mean having nothing. Uh, He's not saying that Christians must be poor. That happened to be Jesus' particular instruction for this particular individual. Uh, However, the point is that we should be prepared to lose everything if we need to for the sake of Christ. Uh, Second, he's not saying that wealth by itself is a bad thing. Uh, There are actually lots of wealthy people in the Bible, and uh, they're commended oftentimes. Wealth can be a blessing from the Lord, but remember Jesus is redefining what it means to be one of his followers. So money itself is not evil, it's the love of money that we are to watch out for. And why is that? Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.10, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You know, we often think of Satan as extremely powerful and very obvious. Extremely powerful and very obvious. So we think that we'll be able to resist the really big temptations. Like as if Satan will just come knocking at our door and say, hey, do you want to follow me? Uh, but that's not really what he's like. In reality, he's very subtle and crafty, I would say. He wants to go unnoticed. Uh, one preacher likened him to a spiritual anesthesiologist. Anesthesiologist, the one who uh, puts you out before a surgery, basically. Uh, they describe you, you get the gas, it's painless. They tell you to count backwards from 10. And by the time you get to 7, you don't remember anything else. It's painless and you slowly fade out. And Satan will use non-threatening and even good things like money to slowly put us spiritually to sleep and making us comfortable until we get like this rich young man, unaware of how attached we are to material possessions. He was so attached to the comfort of his riches that he couldn't part with them. The third thing Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying that you can gain your salvation by doing things like giving to the poor. Uh, Christians should certainly have a heart for the poor and offer care. Uh, There's lots in the Bible that talks about that, but 
the actions of giving away his things and following Jesus uh, are two sides of the same coin. For this man, following Jesus looked like giving up all his things and selling them and giving them to the poor. Following Jesus means surrendering everything in life to God and setting your comfort and stability on nothing other than Jesus Christ. So whether you are wealthy or not, you have peace in Christ. You cannot serve two masters, Jesus says in Matthew 6. You cannot love both God and money. Uh, This man had wealth. He had power. He had a desire to follow the commandments and he even revered Christ. Yet none of this was enough to inherit eternal life. Uh, It's a good reminder to us that there are many who like the idea of Jesus and perhaps even profess faith in him who will not enter the kingdom of God. There are many who I fear believe themselves to be good, believe they've done enough to be saved, when in reality, when they face Jesus on the day of judgment, they may only be told by him, you lack one thing. Brothers and sisters, let that not be any of us. Beware of placing your trust in anything other than Christ. Beware of the false gods of comfort and pleasure and materialism. I think those are the most common idols of the day. Think about what's important in your life. Is there anything in your life that you would be tempted to cling to if you had to choose between that thing and Jesus? The rich man believed if there was anything he could do to inherit eternal life, he would do it. And Jesus quickly showed him that wasn't the case. I like to think that I am not like this man, but I fear we all may be more like this man than we realize. Even if you don't own land, uh, if you're living in America, you're more wealthy than most of the world. Take stock of your life and beware of the subtle allures of wealth and pleasure and materialism. They are deadly. Point two, an impossible requirement. An impossible requirement. This is verses 23 through 27. The man's sorrow over Jesus' words causes Jesus to teach the disciples about what it takes to gain eternal life. And he went away sorry because he clearly decided he didn't want to part with his riches. I'm guessing when Jesus turned to teach his disciples these things, there was great sorrow on his face as well because Jesus loved the man. But the rich man, while he may have appeared to be an impressive recruit at first, he had a foundational problem from the very beginning. And that problem was believed that he could, in fact, do something in order to gain eternal life. And we can tell that just by the way he asked, what must I do? And to be a a rich ruler means the man certainly had a level of status in his occupation, whatever it was. He had some kind of authority. He likely owned land and maybe had servants. He accomplished a lot in the day, and most likely none of it was easy. And if he was following the commandments genuinely, then he probably did it with good character. He considered himself like the Apostle Paul before he became a Christian, blameless according to righteousness. And he assumed eternal life was a matter of him doing certain things rather than trusting in what Jesus would do. 
So rather than trusting the Messiah to deliver the people from their transgressions, he aspires to, out, to attain outstanding obedience. And that's why Jesus points out the law and God's goodness. He's comparing the man to God's perfect standards. When the man realizes what's required of him, he ultimately chooses his own comforts over following Jesus. So Jesus explains to disciples how difficult it is truly to be saved. He says it twice, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. And while he uses the rich man specifically in this example, the same is true of all people, rich or poor. We cannot enter the kingdom of God on our own. We cannot do anything to inherit eternal life. We all fall short of God's perfect goodness. Even if we were able to observe a majority of the commandments externally, look what Jesus says to his disciples in verse 25. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He's speaking of the rich person, but the task is so obviously difficult that the disciples are wondering, if this is true, then how can anyone be saved? And that's the point. It's impossible to fit a camel through the eye of a needle. And just so you know, this is the largest animal in Palestine. So the largest animal in the region Jesus uses as an example and probably the smallest opening, the eye of a needle. It's not even close. In fact, it's so far from being possible that it would just be silly to even try. Right? Where do you even begin to attempt something like this? The hoof? The nose? It's not going to work. Now, the same is true of our ability to attain salvation on our own. If we tried, we would not come even remotely close. The law just gives us an idea. That's why Paul says the law only brings death because we gain knowledge through the law. We're able to have some kind of measurement of how short we fall. Truly, no one is good but God. It is impossible with man. And that's clearly what the disciples are feeling in this moment. And that's when Jesus gives them this glorious truth. This glorious truth is uh, sadly often taken out of context. A lot of times it's used or quoted by athletes when they win big games uh, or someone who makes a, a great achievement. And I think there's, don't get me wrong, uh, in God's sovereignty and His common grace, there is a sense in which we should give Him the credit and praise and thanks for anything that we accomplish in our lives. That's certainly true. But the force of all things being possible for God in this context is of salvation. And that's just how badly we need to be saved. He needs to work a miracle in our hearts. He needs to give us new life. We need to be reborn. Remember uh, Nicodemus from John 3. Uh, Jesus tells him, he asks a similar question to Jesus. And Jesus tells him he needs to be born again. And he asks him, Nicodemus asks Jesus, how can this happen? How can one be born again? Can an adult go back into his mother's womb? And Jesus tells him, you must be born of the Spirit. And this is impossible for us to do. It must be God's work alone. And that's why the gospel is good news. The gospel is good news that though we have sinned against a holy and just God, 
and we deserve His good wrath for our sins. He made a way for us to be saved by the perfect obedience by His Son to the law and His sacrificial death on the cross and resurrection. He defeats death. He gives us hope of life beyond the grave. He gives us the hope of forgiveness. By the power of God, sinners are saved, including wealthy ones, which Jesus says is harder than fitting a camel through the eye of a needle. Praise the Lord for that. He's made an impossible requirement possible. Salvation is a gift to be received in faith, not a prize to be earned. I don't think it's any coincidence that this event is recorded right after some folks bring children to Jesus. And remember what Jesus says about the children. He says, to them belongs the kingdom of God. And then he says, if anyone's to inherit the kingdom of God, you must be like this child. What's the difference between these children and this rich man? The children are the lowest in society. The children come to him with nothing. This rich man is the first in the society. Comes to him with everything. That's the difference. I think in life we, we can build up things. It doesn't have to be materials. It could be hopes. Uh, it could be goals. It could be anything like that. And we just we carry everything like a huge load of dirty laundry. And there's just no room to add anything else to what you're holding. But in order to receive salvation, you have to throw everything down and receive only from Christ. We bring nothing to the table. This rich man probably walked away thinking it was impossible to walk away from his riches. And perhaps you feel like it would simply be impossible for you to trust in Christ because you'll lose important relationships or maybe you'll have to change your job or you'll have to change your living situation or perhaps you just simply don't believe that Jesus is powerful enough to, to actually change your heart. Uh, friend, if that's for you, I can testify of the power of God in my own life when it comes to this. All things are possible. Don't walk away sorry like the rich man in this passage. Cling to Jesus and trust Him with your life. If you have uh, questions about what that might look like for you in your particular life, please talk to me afterwards. I would love to share more and, and hear from you about that. We've talked about how we need to be prepared to lose everything in order to follow Christ. We've examined Christ's call to a man to do that very thing in which he decided that the cost was too great. But now we move to point three, an immeasurable reward. This is verses 28 through 31, an immeasurable reward. Jesus does not call his followers to take up their cross without giving them a promise as well. He's already told them what he concludes with here, that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. The rich man in the beginning of the passage, again, considered first in the day, powerful, wealthy. He had wealth and status, but he didn't want to give it up. Didn't want to become last for Jesus. And Jesus says, when it comes to the kingdom of God, those who are first now will be last, but those who are last now will be first. And you can tell by the way that Peter responds to Jesus' teaching that he's just <laughs> itching to find out if he's done enough or if the other disciples have done enough. Uh, they likely looked at what Jesus required from the rich man and thought, we don't have enough wealth to give. 
Jesus, we've left everything. Is that enough? Uh, Peter and company, they have left a lot to follow Jesus, but I'm guessing based, based on verse 26, Peter's statement is not a kind of boastful, look how much I've left, but more of an anxious, anxious request to Jesus, hoping and praying that he has done enough to inherit eternal life. And Jesus responds by speaking to him of the reward for all who follow him. First, just notice the extensive list of things that one might have to leave for the sake of following Christ. Houses, brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, children, lands. These are some of the most precious and valuable things you could think of in life. And Jesus is well aware of what following him might mean for you. He's well aware of the cost. It's no surprise. But friends, for however valuable the sacrifice might be, the reward is far greater. And you know what? Even if eternal life was all that was mentioned here, that would be enough, don't you think? This life is a breath, a vapor. Compared to eternal life, that would be plenty to sell everything for. But note that eternal life is not the only thing that is promised to believers. Included in Jesus' call to follow him is an increase of everything that's that's given up. He says, for those who give up all these things mentioned, you will gain them back times a hundred. How can that be? Is this just some kind of get-rich scheme? Uh, Is this some kind of con It's not a cheat code in life. Uh, It it is a reshaping of one's identity and community. It's a grafting into the family of God. It's an adoption process. That's why Jesus says, for everyone who gives up these things, they will be gained back. Because the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, believers share all things. So uh, think of the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out and the church is born. 3,000 people are saved. And it says they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as had any need. They had all things in common, it says. Those who follow Christ are adopted into the family of God. You gain new family members. Back in chapter 3 of Mark's gospel, there's an interesting story when Jesus' ministry is just getting started. And he's gaining crowds and traction as he goes, so much so that his family members are a little bit concerned. They think he is delusional. So they are trying to remove him from the eye of the public. I don't, I don't know if you remember this, but he's in a house teaching with a crowd around him. And, and his family members can't even get to him to pull him away from the crowd. And when the crowd tells him that his mother and brothers are outside seeking him, remember what he said. He said, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. When it comes to following Jesus, our allegiance to him must supersede everything else in the world. And while our earthly family is extremely important, Our brothers and sisters in Christ are the ones we'll spend eternity with. There is no Christian who has given up family 
that has not gained a hundred families in return. You may lose everything at the moment, but you will gain more than you had before being in the family of God. And yes, uh, persecutions is listed right along the rewards here. It's an interesting thing that Jesus throws in. Not typically what you think of when you think of a reward and good things. Uh, The New Testament speaks a lot about that. And and in fact, the New Testament does speak about them in a way that they are beneficial for us. Therefore, our good. The Lord uses them. But Jesus is also reading them the fine print, just like he did with the rich man. Uh, There's no tricks to following Jesus. It may be difficult. It's important to count the cost. Following Jesus might cost you everything, but the reward will be greater still. It includes a multiplication of everything you give up in the family of God and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus says the first will be last and the last will be first. The kingdom of God is not like the kingdom of man. To have everything in this life but not have Christ is to have nothing. And to have nothing in this life But to have Jesus is to have everything. Following Christ may mean forfeiting everything this world has to offer, but in the end, that is very little. After all, what is the value of the rich man's wealth and authority and land if he cannot take it with him to the day of judgment? Final takeaway from this passage. I don't want you to close your Bibles this morning without seeing how deeply Jesus loves and cares for sinners. In his coming and teaching, and in the giving up of his own life, all these things point to how deeply he loves sinners. But notice, even in this passage, how he loves even those who turn away from him, as seen with the rich man. Listen to what J.C. Ryle had to say about this point. We must never forget that Jesus feels love and compassion for the souls of the ungodly. Without controversy, he feels a distinguishing love for those who hear his voice and follow him. They are his sheep, given to him by the Father and watched with a special care. They are his bride, joined to him in an everlasting covenant, and dear to him as part of himself. But the heart of Jesus is a wide heart. He has abundance of pity, compassion, and tender concern, even for those who are following sin in the world. He who wept over unbelieving Jerusalem is still the same. He would still gather into his bosom the ignorant and self-righteous, the faithless and impenitent, if they were only willing to be gathered. We may boldly tell the chief of sinners that Christ loves him. Salvation is ready for the worst of men if they will only come to Christ. If men are lost, it is not because Jesus does not love them and is not ready to save. Let us be reminded of that love uh, in our own lives as we seek to share the hope of Christ with others who do not know of it. Let us be reminded of the love of Christ who spoke difficult truths even to those who rejected him. Let us rest confidently in the love he has shown to us and remember that he gives us grace to receive eternal life if we follow him. And let us remember that No matter the cost, Jesus is worth it, even if it costs you everything. 
Friends, not only is the reward far greater than the cost, but we follow the example of the Son of God who gave up far more than we could ever imagine so that we could inherit eternal life. There's a great hymn called Thou Who Wast Rich that says, Thou who was rich beyond all measure, all for love's sake became poor. From a throne to a manger, sapphire paved courts to stable floors. The eternal Son of God to, the, to a Son of Man. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. He was tempted as we are, yet did not sin. So he can sympathize with our weaknesses. He was scorned by wicked men. Dear friends, can we dare say that Jesus requires too much of us in any situation when he gave up so much for us? Is it possible for Jesus to even ask for too much? Certainly not. For he himself came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we sang earlier that Jesus paid it all. And we remember that as we learn of the rich man who chose his riches over the only one who could attain salvation for us. You have done that in your son Jesus. Lord, help us not to cling to things in this life. Help us to hold tight only to Christ Jesus, who can guarantee our eternal reward. We pray these things in the precious name of your Son. Amen.